Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. There's probably no individual in Canadian history that has been the subject of more rumors, innuendo, lies, falsifications, and intrigue than William Lyon Mackenzie King, Canada's Prime Minister from 1921 to 1930, with the exception of a few months, and again from 1935 to 1948. Born in Berlin, in Ontario, in 1874, he studied at the University of Toronto, at the University of Chicago, and at Harvard. His talents were recognized early, and by the time he was in his late 20s, he was already a deputy minister in Ottawa. He was not 34 when he joined Wilfrid Laurier's cabinet as Minister of Labour in 1908. From the outside, Mackenzie King was an accomplished, highly successful young man. But inside, all sorts of doubts and conceits were brewing, and Rex, as his friends called him, revealed those doubts in his personal diary. That diary became a hot item when Mackenzie King died in 1950 at age 76. In fact, that diary has had such a reputation all its own that it's worth looking at as a subject, and with me to talk about it is Christopher Dummett, the author of Unbuttoned, A History of Mackenzie King's Secret Life, published at McGill-Queens University Press. He teaches in the School for the Study of Canada at Trent University in Peterborough, and he's here in studio. Welcome, Christopher. Thanks for having me. I want to start with a meeting that took place in Ottawa in March 1977. It was Gordon Robertson, the Associate Clerk of the Privy Council, and Jack Pickerskill, the former Liberal cabinet minister. They got together. What happened? So these were uh, two men who were Mackenzie King's literary executors, two of them. I think they met in Jack Pickersgill's house uh, and they, they lit a fire. They uh, took several of these little binders, uh, which contained uh, spiritualism notes from Mackenzie King, notes in which he recorded his seances with mediums, his speaking with ghosts, and they decided to, that these were the items they were going to destroy. They lit a fire and they threw them in. So the fireplace was the last witness to those diaries. <laughs> in a way, yeah. It was, it was kind of a, this final moment. This has been the big hit against Mackenzie King was that he was a spiritualist, that he liked to talk to ghosts. Is that a bad thing? <laughs> was that such a bad thing? Well, uh, you know, it's, you, how, how do you answer that question? Uh, <laughs> Do you, you don't talk, talk to ghosts? Do you talk to ghosts? I talk to myself a lot. I think we all, we all, I think there's a lot of sympathy many years later for King, right? I think we, 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 we have a lot of sympathy for that. I think he, he was an odd character. He would have described it, he did describe it, that he was a psychic researcher. So in other words, he was interested in the possibility of communication with the beyond. And, you know, really, we know more than interested, he was pretty certain that he was speaking with that. He had very few people to confide in. I mean, he, this is a man who's a bachelor, lifelong bachelor, uh, there are, he had women friends, uh, men friends. Um, but tell me about this diary. Tell me about this diary. What, how was this diary put together? So he starts it uh, when he's just when he's starting uh, the University of Toronto as a young student, 1893. So it starts very early in his life, and at that point, these are kind of diary books that you would buy that would have a, a page for each day, uh, and they would have at the, you know, the beginning and end of these books kind of the lists of, of all the members of Parliament and kind of House of Commons, the important dates of the year. It was very you know it was a store bought item, and he would 
you know, write in each day. And, you know, pretty soon, like really soon, he started filling up all of the space. You know, he would just fill these books to the brim. And he kept that up for most of his life. You know, there, were, there were some periods in the early, early 20th century where there were some gaps. And then, you know, certainly when he's prime minister, he's filling them up to the point when when he comes back into office uh, in 1935, he decides that what he's going to do is, in fact, not write in, in these store-bought diaries, but in fact, have one of his assistants take down the transcription of his uh, of his diary in shorthand. So he's telling his assistants about his ghost experiences? Yeah. So he would have had to trust these people pretty clearly. The man who did it for the longest period of time, it's a bit unclear who these people are, but one man who did it for the most time is his picture is actually on the cover of my book. It's uh, J. Edward Handy. Edward, Edward Handy. Yes. And, uh, you know, he's an interesting guy and he certainly, King trusted him a lot. And then he would go off and then type it up into these binders. Um, now, why, why would King do this? Wasn't it risky for him to do this kind of thing, to confide his innermost thoughts, his doubts on paper like that? Why did he do it, do you think? So early on, I think as a young man, he did it to keep himself to account. Really, he he was a guy, he was a real stern Christian in a way. He thought he had to write down what he achieved, what he didn't achieve, what he failed to achieve. And and he did that to sort of keep account of of his life. Um, Later on, you know, the longer he's prime minister, I think he you know, partly it's it's speaking to the pillows. Partly it's he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have a, a, a someone in his daily life to confide to. So it, it takes it takes the place of that person. Um, and then he also also has in mind that he's going to use these to write his memoirs later on. So he wanted to use. Oh, okay. So he wanted to write a book. Yeah. He wanted to write his own. His and own he memoirs. would frequently say this to people. They'd be in in his house, and he would kind of pull down a volume of the diary, and he would even if he really trusted you, read you a portion of it. Wow. Except that he dies. He dies. And in. did he want his diaries to be published? <laughs> so it's a little bit unclear, but it would seem, I, I, I would say no. I think it's pretty clear. He writes in his will, which he, he did various versions of it, that his diaries are to, be destroyed, are to be destroyed except those portions which I indicate are to be preserved. Now, this is kind of a mouthful. What, what does he mean by indicated? Now, he, in writing, he never suggests that he wants anything to be preserved. He, maybe, maybe he never had the time. Uh, and in the time after he dies, he appoints these four literary executives to take charge of all his papers, including his diary. They never destroy the diaries. They do destroy, destroy those few items that we get in 1977. And they ultimately decide over this long, drawn-out process in the early 1970s to release them to the public. I've used the diaries a couple of times for my research, and I find them fascinating, doubly so, since they're now online. I mean, anybody can access the William Lyon Mackenzie King diaries, and they're fun reading. I'd almost say they're addictive. I mean, you start looking, and they're searchable. Uh, it's, it's actually quite fascinating reading to think what he what he wants to do. I, I even did a little piece for, um, for findings, our little um, uh, Champlain Society um section on on small documents and it was fun to look at what he thought about on on a christmas day and what you know the kinds of people who visited him and uh it was it was fun it was fun to read i was grateful uh that he had jotted his impressions it's a rare thing we don't have many diaries from prime ministers do we no we don't um what do you think has been the contribution of these diaries to our understanding of history uh i mean i think one, they're an incredible document. You know, it's something like uh, over 57 years. So it's, it's an incredible document for all the reasons you say. I think they've, even though they damaged King 
for a number of decades. They certainly showed all his eccentricities, his odd side, and there was a lot of focus on that for a while. I think what they've done to the history of the early part of the 20th century is they've given us a history that is very much shaped through Mackenzie King's eyes. So certainly the Canada's political history for the time when he was prime minister, historians go to these because they're such great documents. And I think, you know, it's counterfactuals are always fascinating. What if the great diary we had for all this period was Arthur Meehan's and not Mackenzie King's? <laughs> you know, what if he well, had every day, <laughs> you know, you know, or, or some other figure? And I think there's undoubtedly, even though we go into them skeptical, like all historians are, there's no doubt that our view of the first part of the first half of the 20th century is shaped by, uh, through the prism of Mackenzie King's vision. What's strange is that while King revealed a lot of himself, I get the impression reading your wonderful book that it was things that he did not write about or, or that became contentious. Let me explain my thinking. I mean, why did why did it become so important for people to have access to these diaries? And the, the executors, you say, indicated, well, they made a decision pretty early on that the diaries would not be available, did they? What was the thinking there? Well, so early on, they weren't even sure they were going to give it to his official biographer. And then they decide, well, they'll give them to his official biographer. Maybe he won't quote from them. And you see this kind of gradual loosening of the grip that they're going to open it up more and more and more. Now, is that Fred McGregor or is that McGregor Dawson? I keep getting those. So McGregor Dawson, there's so many McGregors in Canadian yeah, history. <laughs> <laughs> so McGregor Dawson is the official biographer. Okay. And, and Fred McGregor is one of the, the, his literary uh, executives. Okay. And Fred McGregor writes a book too, though, doesn't he? He does in the early 60s. That's in the early right. 60s. And he uses the diary. He does, yeah. McGregor Dawson, does he get to use it? He does, yeah. And so, so what's the decision that they'll they'll allow the biographers to use it, and then they'll release it to the public, or what? Well, I mean, we're talking about the 1950s. And now. initially, they were going to destroy them. That, that was okay. okay. Uh, and it, but it was always debated. So some of the executors wanted them destroyed, uh, including especially Norman Robertson, oh. right? Uh, and Norman Robertson was probably, even though he had very little personal uh, uh, liking of King, uh, you know, but he felt that there was a kind of duty that, that this had been written down that they, they ought to destroy them. Now, he dies in 1968 before they've made the final decision to open them up. And I think it's pretty clear that the fact that he dies and isn't around for those discussions on Christmas Eve 1971 when they finally decide to open them up, I think the fact that he's not there is probably one of the reasons again, why we have To remind him. our listeners, Norman Robertson was the, 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 the Mandarin. The, uh, That's right. In Jack Granstein's uh, famous phrase, he was secretary to cabinet under King. He was um, he was uh, Canadian ambassador to the court of St. James, to Washington at one point. That's right. Um, and as, uh, yeah, and as you say, uh, didn't particularly like King personally, but maybe it was there was a concern about maintaining the reputation of the prime minister. Something about the statecraft. Is there something like that that would have kept somebody like Robertson? I think it's also a sense of of kind of kind of decency and decorum. I think okay. it's a sense yeah. of of honor and duty. And if someone's right. written down in a in a final will and testament a line that says my diaries are to be destroyed except those portions. I think he just had a real strong sense of what was public and what was private. Now, in your book, you talk about the, the first revelation about Mackenzie King being a, a lover of, of ghosts. Uh, there's a revelation made practically, what, remind me, a few months after his death in a, a British in A British. A tablet? couple of weeks after he dies a in weeks, a publication okay. called Psychic News. There you go, uh, Psychic News. Psychic News. If, for for all, the, all the subscribers out there, it's, it was around in the 1950s as well. Does it still exist? I, uh, I, I don't know, but <laughs> publications like it still exist. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. Uh, psychic News. And and it revealed from, you know, recollections of this woman, the Duchess of Hamilton, who said she had introduced King to many spiritualist mediums in London on his visits to London. 
And so that was out there really a couple weeks after he died. And it, it slowly filters out. It, it gets published. The story gets published almost verbatim with a kind of a less offensive uh, uh, title in the Ottawa Citizen in the autumn of 1950. Uh, and stories leak out. But it's a bit unclear in the 50s what they're to do with these things, right? Or whether can, you could believe them or not. Were Canadians upset? Or, I mean, what was the reaction in Canada? Uh, it was a mixture. I think, you know, I, mean, you know, I, I, I've been through the private letters of, of, of many people who wrote about King who, you know, didn't like King. And so they're all snickering very happily about these kinds of things. So they, <laughs> they, 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 lo- they love it. But the, I think it was also seen as kind of a sideshow too, that this was not, you know, what King, the people who really were upset about King, they were upset about his statecraft, his, his political policies. And so this was an amusing thing, but okay. no, maybe not the, the main issue. Well, you're introducing something very topical and again, a big part of your book. Um, King had his friends, but he also had a great many detractors. Um, people were upset about Mackenzie King, the histogy style of, of, of governance. Uh, he, he, oh, there was a sense that he was hiding things. Uh, Bernard Austry, who comes up as uh, one of the first uh, people uh, critical of, of, of Mackenzie King, was convinced that Mackenzie King made money on the side, that he, uh, he profited from his prime ministership. What's the story with... Uh, Harry it was Harry Ferns and Harry Bernard Ferns Austria. and Bernard Austry. So they write the first real critical biography, and they're they're and really in the not fifties. This right is on. so they publish it, you know, in nineteen fifty five. Yeah, and they're not interested in the sensationalistic other stuff. What they want to show, and they only ever, they only ever, ever publish one volume, which takes King up to you know only the you know uh, the very kind of early early years of his public life before he's prime minister, and they're really interested in his hypocrisy. And that was the real take on King, that he would say one thing and do another. So the big revelation of that book was that King, even though he becomes liberal leader in 1919 because he was, he was a Laurier loyalist, he wasn't a, a, a unionist liberal, he hadn't abandoned the liberal party. Right. And they find evidence that he's in fact s- s- seeming to flirt with, uh, with, with the unionist cause. And also that he had been, you know, in, in, the, in the, you know, he goes to the United States and he's also suggesting that maybe the United States shouldn't enter the war, right? And this, you know, in the 1950s, this, this issue really still mattered that they, he was urging uh, what became a potential very important ally to not enter the war. So these were the main things that they were interested in. And of course, that book falls apart in, in a whole fascinating story of, of rivalry between the authors of, you know, it seems to be kind of censorship of its kind of critical take. There seems to be a kind of a move to try to censor discussion of the book. And then comes C.P. Stacy. C.P. Stacy, tell us more about Tell C.P. Stacy. So C.P. Stacy is a fascinating guy. He was a f- former, Canada's former official military historian. Uh, you know, so that he spent the Second World War. He met King uh, when King came, especially the, at the end of the war, to visit the the Normandy battlefields. Stacy would t- took King on the tour to talk about uh, uh, the, to tour the battle sites. He ends up joining the University of Toronto History Department uh, uh, later uh, in, in his life. And in 1976, he publishes, just as he's going to retire, this little narrow book called A Very Double Life. Yes. I remember when it came out. And it was a, it was a, it's a beautifully f- <laughs> written book. It's small. It's witty. It's dry. It's acerbic. It's, it's a wonderful read. You know, I, even, if, even though I'm maybe somewhat critical of Stacey in the book, it's still a beautiful book. Everyone should go and read that book. C.P. Stacey is an important historian. Important historian. In, in his own right. I yeah. mean, his works are still, I still use his works today. As and yet this is the book he, he made more money from than any other. Uh, it was a bestseller. It was a huge uh, and, sensation. But he made fun of King in his book. And he, 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 you know, he had had access to the King's diary before anyone else in the, in the 1960s in his role, in his capacity as official military historian. Right. Okay. And so he'd seen these bits in there. He knew about it, but couldn't do anything. And yet when the executors decide to open it up in the early 1970s, He's already seen this stuff. And so he decides he's going to tell the story, the other side of King, about the, 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 the girls and the ghosts. Uh, 
So let's talk. I mean, so let's talk about Mackenzie King's reputation. I mean, it goes from being. I mean, he was. I mean, after all, the most and to this day the most successful prime minister in a sense that he was. He, he lasted the longest. Um, derided, well, derided, often, often harshly criticized by a lot of people for being unimaginative in the way he governed. Um, a lot of people were were quite happy to see him go uh, and to see Louis Saint Laurent replace him. Um, his reputation seems to take a dive for a long time, and yet, by and you point this out in your book, uh, by the late 1990s, he's actually voted by historians as the number one prime minister in our history. How do you explain that? How does that? How do? What yeah. are the politics of reputation? The politics of reputation. <laughs> well, you know, there, history is always about the present as much as the past, right? His, you know, uh, history is, of course, a conversation between the past and present. That's a great, yeah. uh, uh, that's a great line about history. And what's clear when you write about uh, this book, I, which I did, was really about history of King's afterlife. And it's clear that the contemporary concerns always shape how people see people in the past. We're seeing this now with Johnny McDonald, and we saw that with King in the 1970s. And one of the the most, I think the most interesting things in my book is that it's actually about the 1970s, if nothing else, and the way in which the concerns of the 1970s, the, the concerns about the culture of expose, of revelation, that, that were so exemplified on the one hand politically with the Watergate scandal, mm-hmm. uh, the Pentagon Papers, the things that governments were hiding from people. And then culturally, on the other hand, uh, about the culture of expose socially, sexually, psychologically, that this was a time in which revelation and self-inspection were really kind of pretty profoundly important cultural motifs. And I think in the story of King, you see the two things coming together. Here was Canada's most successful prime minister who had hidden parts of his life. People didn't know what he was really like. And so he is constantly compared in the 70s to to Nixon. We didn't know King just like people didn't really know who Nixon was. And Nixon was revealed on the Watergate tapes. King is revealed in Mackenzie King's diaries. And so I think for about 20, 15, 20 years there, that culture of expose, which was so important to Canadians at a certain moment in time, shaped how they saw King. By the 1990s, it's not that that's gone away. It's not that people are any less deferential by the 1990s, quite the opposite. But I think it's lost its kind of uh, titillating appeal. King, King, by contemporary standards, has become somewhat boring. If Certainly the sex life issues, which Stacey uh, talks about, really aren't that titillating. Basically, no. it's, it's, it's that he did have sex. You know, are and, you, know, you sure? Uh, well... I, I, so Stacy says anyway so Stacy suggests uh, or, or whether and, and then and then you get these crazy articles like Michael Bliss wrote this important article saying well he wasn't really having sex with prostitutes when he's talking about his money and time worse than wasted he's really reading pornography and these become these bizarre debates in Canadian historians but was he visiting prostitutes or was he masturbating and these are not this is not where normally we think uh, I'll distinctly we're remember go. Jack Granstein uh, listening to him in an undergraduate course telling his class that with, with the most solemn, the most solemnly saying, Mackenzie King lived and died a virgin. <laughs> and we all just burst out. This is the early 80s. We just burst out laughing. Like, Professor Grandstein, how can you know? And of course, he laughed along with us. But it was um, that aspect of Mackenzie King's life didn't hurt him, though, did it? I mean, it didn't hurt him in terms of his reputation. People think, well, he's a kind of an interesting guy. He had he had a diary. He talked to his mother. He loved his mother. It used to be a uh, an issue that people made fun of, but everybody loves their mother. 
no. <laughs> so I think this is now. I think this is now the view. What you're saying. I think. Yeah. I think we're in a much more morally relativistic sense yeah. on those kinds of issues. Yeah. Not so much earlier in the century. So yeah, I think now we're we're a bit over it. I, so I, I agree. We're over it. We're and, over but, it. I, but one of these just things is how do we how do we get to be over that? Because that? that was not always the case. We no. lived in a Canada where how much you loved your mother in the 1950s with Freud everywhere. <laughs> how much attention did you pay to your mother? This kind of mattered, you know, for a couple of decades. You right? point that out in your book. And it's actually a very interesting sidebar. The number of Freudian studies, the number of times Freud is is uh, invoked in, in writings, and uh, and you draw a parallel between that and the. Uh, and the writing about King. But there's another aspect to King that I think is important, which is that historians uh, really reassess, and maybe this again, this is where the 60s come into play, when historians look back on the Second World War and say, there's an approach to the way Mackenzie King ran the war, especially. Nobody really talks about Mackenzie King in the 1920s. It's remarkable how we've forgotten that King you know, governed for most of the crazy 20s. Uh, and his 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 record on solving the depression was pretty well useless. I mean, from 35 to 1939, there's no, there's no real Mackenzie King accomplishment. But the Second World War, his handling of conscription, his handling of Quebec, his handling of the welfare state was, I get the impression, rediscovered in the 60s and 70s. And at that generation of historians, Jack Granstein, Michael Bliss, Desmond Morton, uh, thought again about Mackenzie King in a different light. I mean, that must be the reason why in 1997, as you point out, Mackenzie King, who'd been mocked, becomes number one. Beats beats John A. (laughs) Beats Wilfrid Laurier. Yeah. Remarkable thing. And, you know, again, that too is part of the time. You you know, I think it's a couple of years after the 95, the second referendum, the near loss. There have been a couple of decades of constant mega constitutional politics, which dominated ad nauseum our political life. And so in in that context, it's exactly why people would look and say, well, maybe the the quietest approach of Mackenzie King's, Mm. dampen it down, avoid controversy, seemed after a couple of decades of maybe too much conversation to be a more attractive approach. We're now almost uh, 70 years after he died. We're, We're nearing the 70th anniversary. What do you think is the future of this diary? What, what, we've had a couple of really good books uh, that have made good use of, of, um, of the diary. What do you think is next for this diary? Well, I mean, first of all, historians can never predict the future. So let's just, just that <laughs> in a very, asked, a very important <laughs> caveat, okay? But, uh, okay, here's what I would do with Please. the diary if I sure. wasn't probably sick of it, which I, after I finish a book, I'm always sick with what I've, what I've just done. So what I think... I think cultural historians should go to it. I think social and cultural historians. I think it, it's such a huge document that it's what's interesting in that isn't are are the kind of the taken for granted assumptions of daily life, the kinds of things he would do on the side, the people he would see, the way he would speak. I think that's the real beauty of this huge document. Uh, it's not so much policy anymore. I think we've gone through it for the policy issues. There will still be some things we can find there, but I think it's the the cultural assumptions of a period which is now firmly historical. So it, it, in the 60s and 70s, many people were alive for whom this was uh, this was their life, right? That, that this was their childhood. They they were of that era. And n- n- no one in Canada, for no, no one in Canada today is really the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1910s, their time. Your first book, Christopher, was on 
evolving concepts of masculinity. You're not tempted to go back to the Mackenzie Di- King diaries and and look at it through the prism of masculinity. Sure, I mean, if I if <laughs> many, I, the, the, I have a whole bunch of research notes, which which if I had the inclination, I could do that. I'm and sure. certainly, it, it would was make for a good book. It was his masculinity that, that upset a lot of people. He wasn't a he wasn't a club man, which is to say that he was just as happy, maybe happier talking uh, before a dinner party about the arrangement of flowers on the table. This is what his critics would say. And, and uh, there's a real attack, attack on his masculinity there. Uh, and he's happier doing that than he would be going down to the club uh, and ch- ch- you know drinking whiskey around the table with, with the men. So absolutely, the, m- much of the criticisms had to do with, with, with his gendered identity. Thank you, Christopher, for sharing your ideas on this very important topic. It's a pleasure having you. The Champlain Society has been in the business of discussing primary documents since 1905, and this discussion follows that great tradition. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I was speaking with Christopher Dummett, the author of Unbuttoned, A History of Mackenzie King's Secret Life, published at McGuinnell Queen's University Press. He teaches in the School for the Study of Canada at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the society does, including its publications, its blog, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and sustainer of the society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. The Champlain Society is entirely voluntary, but money is always needed to keep the lights on. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was recorded on August 29, 2018, and produced by Ali Jawani and Naomi Katz. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.